It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. There's a part of me that feels like I'm existing in two worlds in the sense that I very much am excited about innovation and technology and progress in many, many different fields. And I also feel like there's something to be said about vinyl records and the warmth and the feel and the vibration of putting an actual vinyl record on a player and driving a stick shift and having a kickstart motorcycle. And there's this interesting wave of, quote, dumb phones that have no social media, no apps, no any kind of social interactive capability beyond calls and texts, which it was like, oh, I had that Nokia phone back in 2006, but now they're repackaging them as sort of phones for humans. There's this interesting company that came out recently called Light Phone that our dear friend Adam Yasmin just got. And he said he has his regular iPhone to do his networking and his social media and whatnot. But when he's out playing with his daughter or he's out with family or friends and wants to have a higher level of presence, he literally will leave his iPhone at the house and bring this Light Phone with him so that he's not constantly distracted by that dopamine hit. But see, the problem with you is that your phone is always on do not disturb, Jason. The only way to call, there's a hack to reaching Jason by phone. Oh, we're going to share this publicly? <laughs> well, I mean, people would need to know your numbers first. So <laughs> That's true. You can't call, make a regular phone call. You have to make a FaceTime audio call to Jason. Otherwise, he won't pick up. It always goes directly to voicemail which is actually probably good for Jason to an extent, but it's incredibly... I have a couple friends that are like that, and it's incredibly frustrating because you have to always like... My, it's not set in my brain that way, so I have to like skirt around it. If I may, because I am I haven't told you what I'm going to do, but I have a way around this. The core people in my life, the people that I tend to speak to on a very consistent basis, whether it's Whitney, my best friend and business partner, my family, the, the people I'm doing deals with, the, the core people I need to communicate with, I'm going to give them a new number to my, quote, dumb phone, which is will be my bat phone, so that only a core select group of people can reach me on that phone. Whereas the constant flood of DMs and emails and texts and phone calls, it, it honestly can get so overwhelming, which is why I use Do Not Disturb, because I don't want the constant pinging all day, literally all day long. So I feel like having this bat phone will allow you, Whitney, and also you, Jeff, as a person close in my life, a very select group of people that, okay, if you can't get me on my iPhone, you know to ring me on the bat phone. And I feel like it's a good filtration system when I don't want to have my face constantly planted in the iPhone or the computer because I'm trying to use technology more mindfully, much more mindfully. And I think, you know, in the sense of mindfulness, that's a big thing that we see is becoming an addiction. We did a, a really interesting panel recently, Jeff, with a guy named Tommy Sobel who runs this company called Brick. And Do you know him? I feel like the two of you should be connected. Tommy Sobel. Yeah. Mm, I do not know him biblically or in any <laughs> Actually, other way. Maybe an, an event together would be really great because he does phone free events and retreats just to encourage people to not be off their phones and be present with each other. Can you get in touch with him? <laughs> There's yes, a homing actually, pigeon, actually. He's There's actually a... very easy to get in touch with. And that, that's an interesting question. Now, now that you've said that, I'm like, hmm. Smoke signals, perhaps? <laughs> Send a raven. Yeah. Send a raven. Oh, uh, yeah. On a hunter's moon. Maybe he's, he's Only responds on a hunter's moon. Sacrificing his own mental sanity to help people regain theirs. I want to ask you both a question that I'm curious about both of your perspectives on something. And also to throw this out to the dear listeners for their consideration as well. At the beginning of this year, there was a, a couple of interesting articles. Well, it was technically late 2019 before the roaring 20s came. One was, we've reached peak wellness. This was in the New York Times. And then a few weeks later, Mind Body Green, which we, we really love, Jason and his staff and everything they've done with that website, had an article about basically wellness is dead. Did you see this, Jeff? No, I did not see this. No. So we had competing articles, one that said we've achieved peak wellness and simultaneously wellness is also dead. Correct. Is that correct? And the nature, though, the thread through of both of these articles was akin to we've reached a point where there's so much 
unattainable, unnecessary esoteric practices that they named a few, you know, super herbs, superfoods, crazy expensive ingredients, different certain practices around mindfulness and presence and wellness that are not actually statistically or scientifically verified to provide wellness that in both of these articles, it was the idea that if we can simplify things back to moving your body every day, eating cleaner food, eating local food, drinking more water, having healthier relationships, that all of these, quote, esoteric, unobtainable, expensive wellness practices become null and void. And they were both kind of knocking the wellness movement a little bit. And with both of you, I'm just curious, how does that land when you hear those article titles? And where do you think the state of wellness is now? And where do you think it's going? I think that we definitely are at a saturation point because you're seeing the term wellness over and over again. And one of those articles suggests that we start referring to it as well-being instead, but I can't remember the reason why. So that's another thing. Is there a difference between well-being and wellness? Yeah. I mean, I think I'd like to tie it back to your original point about the dumb phone or potentially the rotary phone or anything that might seem to be old. And I think that there's this plethora of modalities that have had their efflorescence, I suppose, in over the last 10 years, yoga, local food, meditation, mindfulness, the paleo diet, living in community, natural childbirth, it goes on and on and on. You know what's actually interesting about all those new wellness trends? They're fucking old. (laughs) They're fucking old. Thousands of years old. And I mean, paleo, millions of years old, (laughs) okay? But they have become, these modalities and methods, ideas and practices have become more prescient now because of the salient social issues of our time, whether they be personal, insomnia, stress, anxiety, or social, social polarization, income inequality, climate change, et cetera. We are now looking for solutions to address our personal and societal inflammation, and that these are tools and practices that are old and true. Now, we don't necessarily think of them that way. They're not framed in the media that way. They're not marketed as things that are old, but indeed they are. And I think it's generally good. I mean, you can trace meditation back to obviously Siddhartha and the Buddha. You can trace it back to the book of Genesis, or even in the Old Testament, I think as Isaac kind of meanders out into the field to meditate, and that we have a lot of kind of new evidence-based scientific study around the effects and impacts of meditation on heart rate, on your brain, on stress levels, etc. But somehow we intuited all of those same impacts thousands of years ago without science, without the scientific method, pre-enlightenment. So what I get concerned about, and this will make me seem like a really old fuddy-duddy, to be honest with you, is that oftentimes a lot of these wellness practices are framed around the demystification of them. And now we're meditating for optimal performance, for focus at work, to win the Super Bowl, to compete in the workplace, to essentially... Like ego-based reasons. Exactly. And that in our quest to sort of make a bigger tent for yoga, and I'm guilty of this with wanderlust, but make a bigger tent for yoga, make a bigger tent for mindfulness. We're stripping out the components that actually made that practice powerful in the first place, which is giving you a sense of one consciousness, a sense of connection, a sense of unity, a sense of serenity, a sense of an escape from desire, And that we're now using them as sort of modern hacks and tools to be better at work, to essentially bring home a higher wage, to have more success, to compete against other people in a dualistic environment instead of essentially adopting those practices for their core original purpose, which is Advaita Vedanta, like essentially oneness moksha, kavalya, escape from the notion that of the separate self, that I am separate from you, that I am separate from God, that I'm separate from other people, that I'm in competition with other people, that I am what my resume says, what I am, what the world says I am, that I judge myself through the, uh, my own identity through the eyes of others. Essentially, these practices were created to escape from that, but we're using them in these secular 
kind of world of hacks. Yes. It's interesting as you say that, Jeff, because first of all, thank you for that incredibly detailed and passionate rant. Like, I appreciate it very Response. much. No, but I, I say rant in a good way, not in a, not in a negative way, like just a very passionate input to the subject. What I've kind of observed in this, in backing up what you said, is similar to other kind of social movements that they start with sort of this underground uprising or counterculture thing. And suddenly they become co-opted or reach a tipping point where corporate entities realize that they can monetize them. And in terms of, you know, say yoga and meditation now, it's just interesting how when the ego gets involved, as it does, tries to leak in there, then it's about getting the right mala beads and the aloe yoga pants or the right lulus and the right shoes and being at the right studio and following the right people on Instagram and as a yoga teacher or meditation practice, making sure your numbers are high enough. So in this seeking of oneness and stillness and inner peace, there's this interweaving now in 2020 that continues to perpetuate of and not blaming social media, but seeing the comparison trap and evaluating one's worth and one's social status, even in the world of wellness, meditation, yoga at all, by defaulting to this egoic trap that we all compare ourselves to. And I just think that that duality is so fascinating in this world we're discussing. Yeah. It's also interesting because the three of us are based in Los Angeles at this time. And I feel like LA has that energy of, of ego and competition but it also has this side of there's so much information we have in this city and so much access, I should say, to wellness in a way that very few parts of the world have. I mean, you know, we were just talking earlier how if you want to go do ayahuasca, it's like you can easily find somebody who's teaching ayahuasca, which is something that other parts of the world just don't have that type of access to that we do. And so we're very fortunate but we also, in my opinion, are often battling the ego here. So it's like a, when people ask me, well, why do you like to live in Los Angeles? I have to step back and think about it. For me, it's we have the wonderful weather. We have incredibly interesting people. We've accessed all of these things. But then there's the side of me that thinks, well, that's a trade-off because we have so much technology. We have things like 5G that are here. I mean, there's just there's so much coming at us. It's like we have to counterbalance it with all this wellness. But then are we just coming back to a neutral place versus like going on a deeper level with wellness? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what you say about how counterculture movements begin. Yeah, they start on the very edges, on the margins of society by people who on some level may be disenchanted or have some sort of intellectual proclivity or look around at the world and don't see it, that it's actually functioning for them. And they adopt certain ideas and practices that challenge the status quo. So we saw that with Eastern religions and yoga and meditation in like the 60s and 70s. But what essentially capitalism, our modern global religion does, is that it commodifies every single thing by its nature. So inside the system and structure of capitalism and how it works, it relies on essentially consistently messaging the concept that you are not enough, and then marketing gadgets, practices, trinkets, whatever it happens to be, to address that perceived efficiency. Okay, that is just the nature of what capitalism does. And so when it commodifies things like wellness modalities, practices, yoga, all of its associated trinkets, crystals, mala beads, whatever it happens to be, it's essentially saying to people that you can purchase this external agent, and this external agent will be the thing that will solve your discontent, that will essentially make you feel enough. But everybody knows that that's a treadmill to nowhere. It doesn't work. You're then consistently seeking the next external agent, whether that's drugs and alcohol, whether that's pornography, whether that's services, poise, trinkets, fancy car, a McMansion, it doesn't matter. Essentially, you are consistently relying on things that are outside yourself to provide contentment and happiness. And what is, I might just use the phrase fucked up about it, is that these practices were designed to be the opposite of external. They were designed to be internal. They were designed for you to go inside, to find things that are not ephemeral, 
to find a place that sits, a part of you that sits outside of the world of the 10,000 things, sits outside of space and time and location and form. That's where consciousness is. That's where equanimity, non-attachment live. So capitalism is a fine system and it has provided prosperity and brought a lot of people out of poverty. And it has also created a tremendous amount of very good piping for our society. But what we are now stuck in, mired in as a society, is a kind of individual materialism that we have never experienced before. And it is compounded through social media, AI, all of these other things that essentially is like, I am what I have. That's it. I am what I have. That is the global ethos of what it means to be a human being. I am what I have. I am what I look like I have. Or I am what I look like. Like the faking it till you make it type of like, I am my numbers. I am my beauty. I am my fashion. I am, you know, like all of these things we identify with. And as you were talking, I was reflecting a lot about some of my experiences. I go to this yoga studio right now that I love deeply. I feel so nourished by the teachers and the practices there. It is such a struggle for me sometimes because the great majority of the people at this yoga studio fall into this standard of what I perceive to be superficial in Los Angeles. You know, they're mostly women that look like they spend a lot of time on their appearance. And then when I observe their behavior, whether it's to me or around me, it's kind of clicky or it reminds me of like, it's like the popularity thing, right? And I often feel out of place or conflicted going to this yoga studio because I have to constantly be mindful to stay internal versus to get caught up in the external and and compare myself. Like, do I look as good as them? Are my clothes as nice as them? Is my body in the right shape as theirs? Should I try to fit in and be their friends? Do they like me? Do they not? You know, like my mind goes to all those places and it's like part of my practice now of grounding myself. But I find that that's part of Los Angeles and, and wellness is even when, you know, Jason and I are involved in a lot of the social media communities for wellness. And it's like, Every time I have to take this deep breath before I interact because you go to an event or something and people are like, how many social media followers do you have? Or let's take a perfect photo and edit it. And, you know, like it becomes so external. And to your point, it's like it takes so much work to go internal in this type of environment. Yeah. Social media has become the forum to project your enoughness. Mm. That's a quotable. That's a really good quotable. (laughs) And what you said, you said the word in there, which is fit in. Like, oh, do I need to be in that place of my egoic mind? Here, I've gone to this place for the purposes of essentially connecting with myself, enhancing my spiritual practice, etc. And now do I need to turn on my egoic mind in order to fit in? And Instead, and this is like Brene Brown makes a great distinction between fitting in and belonging. Fitting in is changing your behavior or who you are to be accepted, while belonging is not sacrificing or compromising your authentic self and still being part of the group. And there is a absolute major gap between what those two things are. And, you know, I have three daughters. I see it all the time especially with my eldest daughter, who's 15, who is so consumed, and I don't want to throw her under the bus because she's lovely and wonderful in so many different ways, but she is so consumed by her social media presence and by essentially that basing her identity in likes and comments and shares and followers that to the point where she actually has panic attacks around kind of social media distress. Not only that, but that the constant barrage of, you know, dopamine, and we talk about the biochemistry around social media, and there's been a lot of the studies around this are very prevalent now, but that it prohibits one from actually forming what I call long-wave thought patterns, because it, it essentially keeps you on this kind of EKG of life, 
or these very, very short, jagged waveforms that are representative of of your thoughts. And they come in little bite-sized packages where if you are living in space in a greater amount of openness where you're not getting pinged and dinged every two seconds, where your do not disturb is on, you can essentially develop what I call long wave thoughts, which is where like real creativity comes, where real, where thoughts are processed, where manifestation can begin to occur. I'm reading a book right now. I think it's called The Shallows. Have you either of you heard of it? Actually, one of our recent guests, Trevor Algott, brought it up. And it's about the impact that technology and the internet has had on our on our brains. And it's really fascinating because one of the points in the book is how people are reading less and less. They don't want to read books as much because it's so long form. And we're used to these like scanning. And people sometimes are literally struggling to read because we're conditioned our brains to scan. So reading sentences word by word is incredibly challenging for some people because of how our brains are adapting to this environment in this society right now. And I found that so interesting because I don't perceive that I have that challenge. I read a lot and I really enjoy it. But I do notice it seems like less and less people are talking about books. More of us scan the news, the newspapers or the internet clips. We want all this bite-sized piece of information. We want these bite-sized hits of dopamine. We're often being encouraged as content creators, as each of us are, to make short form content because that's what people want. And I kind of find myself rebelling against that. I'm like, no, I want to make long form content. But then there's that feeling of the fit in feeling again. It's like, well, am I, gonna, am I not going to fit in because I'm doing the long form? Aren't people not going to like what I'm doing because it goes against their desire for these bite size experiences? It's interesting because I feel like if we don't fight for it, you know, if we don't encourage people to read, if we don't encourage for people to watch long form or listen to long form content, we're basically encouraging people to be in this bite-sized culture. And I, I don't think that's good for our brains. It's not. I mean, it's encouraging that podcasts have become so popular yes. because it is a long form medium that I think people are craving. Not that any kind of craving is good. Let's go but back to I addiction. Think <laughs> documentaries actually to that point are on the rise again too. I mean, simply because documentary filmmaking has become so accessible. And that's actually what I enjoy watching the most these days is like the six part series, documentary series, right? So to your point, maybe that is growing. Yeah, I mean, I think our brains have even evolved to a place where there seems to be like a chatterbox like quality, like a ticker running across. And this isn't a symptom just of our modern culture. But essentially, and anyone listening to this podcast can relate to this. In fact, they're probably thinking right now and like, I mean, even while I'm sitting here, like there's part of my brain going like, oh, I'm sure glad that I went to the bathroom before we went to the podcast because I don't go to the bathroom. I really do actually start to go to the bathroom a lot as now I'm becoming 50. Maybe I, does, that, does that mean I have diabetes or does that a prostate issue? I don't really, really know. I should go see the doctor. But my <laughs> fucking doctor moved to New York, so I don't really have a doctor. I didn't really like that guy anyways. I actually would prefer a doctor on the east side versus the west side. Anyways, the west side is so Gwyneth. Fuck goop. I actually really like that politician, though. Anyways, and like that's going through my head right now while I'm actually trying to concentrate on being somewhat articulate with you guys right here. I mean, if you essentially exported that chatterbox and put that in a corporeal form in a seat next to me in a pale blue pantsuit, like and listened to that person, you would think that they were a neurotic psychopath, okay? But that neurotic psychopath, that pantsuit is up here in my head all the time. What freedom is, is freedom from the fucking pantsuit. Michael Singer, I I saw- This is Michael Singer, uh, yeah. yeah, I saw a great interview Russell Brand did with Michael Singer yesterday. And Michael Singer wrote Untethered Soul, fantastic. And, and he did a kind of an extension of what you're alluding to, Jeff, of like the inner voice, the inner critic, the monkey mind, all of these. It's always going, always. I mean, there are times where it's like, can we go to sleep now? We don't have to like think about folding socks in the club. We can do that tomorrow. It's okay. Let's go to bed now. But that constant thing is, and when I talk to people who've just started to meditate for the first time or just beginning 
mindfulness practices, they're like, I want to shut that off. I'm like, you're not going to shut it off. But you can choose whether or not you want to let it run you or not. It's not about shutting that off. It's like, I acknowledge it's there, but I'm not going to let you make decisions or tell me how to live my life. Yeah. Well, this is the great struggle of what it means to be human. I mean, this is why we're, we love to play sports. We love to have sex. We want to eat fucking chocolate, all these things, because we want an escape from the conceptual mind. We just want to devour, be in the moment, be kind of within our natural habitat. But the fact is, it's too late for that. We ate the fucking apple. Okay. We know our consciousness is a double edged sword. You know, we know 100 without 100% certainty that not only is that we're going to die and everyone that we know and love is going to die. We have to deal with that every single day, which creates a state of fear that we live from that feeds the story of the chatterbox. The chatterbox is always going around a story of fear. And this is why you cultivate practices of meditation, like you say, to not become prey, not to live by the chatterbox, but to live with it. And to be, more than anything, to be able to see it, to be able to be aware of its existence, and, you know, over the last couple of years, as I've developed more of a meditation practice, I am now aware of how I am behaving at any particular time. Mm-hmm. So if I'm angry, which is actually pretty a rare emotion for me, but I certainly have plenty of the, run the gamut of many other emotions. But if I'm angry or frustrated with my children or even when I'm elated around a, my sports team wins or whatever, I have the awareness to see myself with that particular emotion. You're witnessing it. I'm witnessing yes. it. Mm, it's that awareness, which is huge, because some people, many people, I would venture to say, don't even realize. It's the beginning of freedom. Yes, absolutely. It's empowering, too. I mean, when I have those moments of awareness, I feel like, oh, thank goodness. I because do. if you are the subject and that emotion is the object, then you are not it. You can feel depressed, but that doesn't mean you are depressed. Mm-hmm. Yes. An emotion or a thought or an object, these are all ephemeral things that you are perceiving with your limited ability through your five senses as fluctuations and phenomenon. You are the house. You will have visitors, invited and uninvited, that will come in and leave, and that's it. But it takes a long time, and I mean, God knows, I don't live in that place all of the time, but I think the more that you actually can read and the more that you can practice, you begin to be able to separate yourself from the objects of that exist within material phenomena, essentially, you know, that you are not this microphone or that camera or that hat but even a step farther, you are not the emotions that you feel. You are not the thoughts that you have. You are not even the body that you are in. It's interesting. Sometimes I have this fascinating sensation that it's not peculiar anymore, but years ago, I started to have a pretty consistent sensation that the I, when I say I, the eternal I, was sitting in the center of my head as if it was controlling with levers and wheels and pulleys this animatronic creation that I call a body. And there are times of lucidity where I will simply in silence stare at my body and marvel in the strangeness of opening and closing my hand or blinking or being present and looking in someone's eyes and realizing that I'm not the meat suit, the flesh suit, but something is controlling the action. And there's an indwelling presence or an eternal isness that I find fascinating. It feels like this weird sensation, this peculiarity of like being positioned, not necessarily in my third eye, but being in my body, staring out of this suit and just feeling like I'm controlling this very strange, wonderful machine that I don't understand. And cells are dying and cells are repairing and organs are growing and organs are rejuvenating and blood is flowing. And I don't even have to consciously do anything. It's just happening. And I think that 
there's this wonderful mystery of existence that I love so much that in the scientific method, the scientific mind, the type A, all of those things, it's we need to figure out existence. What does it mean to be human? What are we? Where did we come from? What is all this? But I kind of love the mystery of not knowing why I continue to exist or breathe or my blood flows or my brain chemistry goes or all of these things with zero effort and zero forethought. It just is happening. Yeah. Peter Cronin talks about that, which it flies counter to generally how the egoic mind works. The egoic mind wants to control every single thing in the future, which is what creates a lot of anxiety, but that living comfortably in the uncertainty, in the I don't know, is a key to freedom. Yes. Yeah. And there is a surrender in that. There is a faith in that. And, you know, I think this is kind of one of the issues right at the crux of what it is to be human, is that there is a quest for knowledge. And if you look at that purely kind of in sort of enlightenment terms, in the mind with kind of reason, rationality, the scientific method, that there we have certain hypotheses about how life works, then we have experiments to test those hypotheses, we gather evidence and we make a determination. There is nothing necessarily wrong with that. In fact, obviously, science and innovation have yielded incredible results, you know, from medical to agricultural to technological, how we've distributed them can sometimes not be great. But to think that we know or that we can know everything that there is to know is the definition of hubris. I mean, what we know sits as like a speck on a pinhead, because all we can know is what our five senses can tell us and the instruments that science has developed to enhance those particular senses, whether that's a telescope or a microscope with your eyesight, or whether that's being able to hear waves outside of kind of the audible frequency spectrum of your ears. But still, it's like to think that there is nothing outside of that. I mean, Deepak Chopra often talks about like the painted lady butterfly. The painted lady butterfly has 31,000 lenses. What does the world look like when, if you had 31,000 lenses? It would be completely different. Mm. I mean, many animals just see in a spectrum of blue and green. So we're limited by our special characteristics or our special limitations as, the, as they relate to our five senses to understand the world around us. So there's no choice but to live in the mystery. Yes. And then in that, then there is no, mm, if I may, absolute reality, because then reality is a construct of the biological perceptibility of one's physiological capabilities. But also as humans, are we living in the actual present moment or are we living in the past? Are we living in story? Are we living in projection? Like It goes to me the question of what the nature of reality actually is. And is there an absolute reality? And is there an absolute truth? Or is this all a subjective conversation? Okay. All a subjective conversation. Yes. So there is a fundamental objective reality, but it exists outside of our ability to perceive it. Most of what we experience as humans exists as subjective reality or really intersubjective reality. It's a fact because you see something as blue or value something, and so does Whitney, Then so and so do I. We agree on the subjective reality of, of that particular determination or perception. And it can extend to currency. It can extend to nation state. I mean, lines around land. I mean, that's all a story, a mythology that maintains certain stability around an imagined order, right? That's it. And so as humans, we're incredible at cooperating around myth, around story, the Bible, whatever. You know, you can use a million examples, democracy. But what exists outside of humans' ability to perceive it? So you might say gravity, maybe, radiation. There may be some things that you could say exist. If humans were banished from the face of the earth, these things might still exist. Yes. Okay. 
Now, I think then there are universal truths and perennial precepts that also may exist within things that you might define as fundamental and objective, that essentially those things that exist outside of space and time and location and form that, like love, Mm. like compassion, like empathy, essentially these qualities, values, truths that every prophet, poet, mystic, religious leader has been positing since the beginning of recorded time. So you might make the the argument that love, that love might exist within an objective reality, because it is not defined through the fluctuations of phenomena and our ability to perceive that phenomena. Hmm. When you use the word love, I mean, that's such a charged word, because there can be so many interpretations, permutations, feelings, expressions associated with that in terms of of, of language and the meaning we assign to the word love. So when you use the word love, do you mean a universal, unconditional love? Like when you use it in that context? Yeah, it's interesting because I've thought about what is the inherent nature of consciousness. Is it neutral or is it good? Is it love? And my sense is that it is neutral, but it also could be love if we understand love as something separate from an emotion, okay? That love isn't necessarily a wanting or a desire. It's actually an essence of complete and utter serenity and acceptance. Like, if you were to essentially define consciousness as sort of the seat of the soul that is the subject, that is the witness, and that is not the object, that is not the emotion, that is not the thought, then I think it is a natural determination to qualify consciousness as neutral, okay? And that the thing about consciousness, which is, I think, wonderful— is that it is focusable. So in a very, I guess, banal example, it's like I'm talking to you guys. My consciousness is very much focused on talking to you guys. But if I heard a rattlesnake behind me, I would turn around and I'd be focused over there as a fight-or-flight response. But generally, if you get to that place where you can live with the awareness of awareness, the awareness of your consciousness, then you begin to be able to develop the skill to focus that consciousness on the things that I suppose matter most to you in life. And one of those things could be compassion. One of those things could be forgiveness. One of those things could be empathy. And what I have come to believe is that the life with integrity, the authentic life, is when your works and actions are aligned with those highest principles, regardless of external circumstances. Mm. And I think that's the key there, because going back to what I was saying earlier, I think for me, one of the things that I've struggled with and this conversation is bringing up for me is the importance of, of figuring out what's important to me versus constantly judging myself, comparing myself, all of those outside elements of of external, what other people think, what is important to others, you know? And I think the way that I'm interpreting some of the things that you're saying is is almost as if like everything is neutral. We're just assigning our own meaning. And I think some of the challenges in life revolve around other people trying to project their meanings and their important things and their judgments onto one another. And it becomes this, I think for certain people like myself, I've spent a lot of my life taking in other people's perceptions. And then it's actually led me to feel very lost. And that's where mindfulness practices such as meditation have really served me because it is helping, it's guiding me back to myself to figure out what's important to me versus how I relate to other people and am I, am I fitting into somebody else's mold? 
And that idea is very comforting if you think of life as more neutral. Just because somebody else perceives something one way doesn't mean that that is the right way. I think we live in this time where a lot of fighting is people trying to say this is right and this is wrong. Yeah. Right. You're doing it the best way versus the wrong way. You know, you're doing a good job versus a bad job. And that can be very conflicting because I think we also equate good. Like if you're doing a good job, that's almost how we we're tied into love. It's like acceptance. You're either accepted or rejected. Right. And I think most of us are afraid of rejection. Coming back to your good enough point that we live our lives trying to constantly seek out approval. That's at the root of this externalization. But if everything is neutral, then it's almost like there is no necessary right or wrong, right? And God has no grandchildren. I mean, your relationship with the divine is yours. There's no intermediary. So your relationship with the divine is absolutely 100% personally yours to define and cultivate as you will. If God is everywhere, there is nowhere he is not. And that relationship is direct. So, yeah, I mean, this is the big problem with institutional religion and why there's so much disaffiliation right now is because it became so highly dogmatic that people don't want to be told what to think and what to feel. What people, I think, do need, and I I made that comment that consciousness is neutral, and, like, also, what the fuck do I know? I mean, pretty much nothing. <laughs> <any> okay, <laughs> But that doesn't mean that there are not universal, eternal, perennial truths. And all we can look at is the history of poets and mystics and prophets and religious leaders who have essentially all said the same thing, different masks, same face, Mm -hmm. that we are connected, that there are truths such as love and compassion and forgiveness and empathy that we should aspire to, to love thy neighbor as thyself. I mean, these are just essentially the same things that have been repackaged through different messengers since the beginning of time. And You know, my critique with modern society is that it is valueless because it is based upon a supposedly mutually beneficial transactional relationship between people, which is purely economic, and that we are so heavily reliant on reason, rationality, and science to explain the world that we live in. But one of the core precepts or conditions for the scientific method is essentially value neutrality, that there are no pre-existing universal truths or values. So I think what we're stuck in right now is a society that functions on a purely economic basis, with no sense for greater universal truths and values. And I've used this particular example before when I've spoken, but even the oil and gas executive does not wake up in the morning and say, like, I'm going to pollute the globe. (laughs) Carbon is at 415 parts per million this morning. By the end of the day, 420. He doesn't say that. She doesn't say that. But in the absence of values... That's the output. So my hope and dream is that we can find ways to reinstill values within our society. And I think that the only, well, there's, there could be many ways to do that, but I think one of the most potent ways to do that is that we need to revive public forums for the real exchange of ideas between free individuals as a means to reinstill meaning into these values and the values themselves. And, you know, we're all bunkered in our little echo chambers. It's, you know, atomized, fractured. It's very 
in living in a world that sees the self as separate, as individuals living amongst other individuals in a separate and external universe that divides the mind and the body, the material and the spiritual, like that essentially divides man and nature, that gives us dominion over nature. We're constantly living in this kind of separate dualism. And it's very, very difficult to have values in that kind of society. At the best, at best, you sort of resort to kind of relativism or historicism, or essentially anybody can come in and, in the absence of values, tell you what your values are. And so that's why when people are wanting deeply for belonging and for connection, in the absence of it, it makes it very easy for a corpulent monster with a red hat and a fancy slogan to ride into town and get people to give a shit. Mm. Because in the absence of community and values, like that's breeding grounds for totalitarianism and authoritarianism. So that's an issue. I feel like there needs to be a part two for this. I will say that part two may be on Jeff's own podcast. (laughs) Meaning like his podcast in a whole is the part two. If you enjoyed this episode, Jeff speaks every week on his own podcast, which is called? It's called Commune. I try to speak less than I did today. You're you're curating it, perhaps, I should say, in that you're bringing on guests that speak to similar topics. So we will link to your wonderful podcast in our podcast show notes at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. Not to say we wouldn't like to have a part two, but we don't know when that'll be. So in the meantime, listening to your wonderful podcast is another great option because my feeling is that you're bringing on guests that have taught you things that you've read their books or or listened to them speak and you resonated with them and wanted to bring them onto yours to share those messages. And I think it's phenomenal. Everything that I just said that made any sense was plagiarized from someone that was on my show. <laughs> Isn't that true? That I mean, Wait, but you had Rumi on your show. <laughs> you, get Rumi? you caught that one How'd too, you get right? Rumi? But you said it yourself. You know, these are the things that people have been saying for thousands of years, and and I think it's important that we continue talking about it because you never know where somebody is on the journey. As a listener, they may be hearing some of these things that you just said for the very first time. So you're just part of the passing along the information, which is really important. Yeah, and we well, appreciate thank, that. Well, thank you. I appreciate what you guys do in this forum. And I would also just say that it is never too late to wake up. I mean, I spent 47 years of my life as a zombie mm. with a program, mm-hmm. not even understanding what my program was. And often it takes inflection points in your life, points of crisis sometimes, to be your best and greatest teacher. And hopefully it doesn't always take that. It doesn't take always hitting rock bottom in order to get better. You don't have to be sick to get better, it said, you know? Mm -hmm. But in my case, yeah, I had, you know, an inflection point of my life very, very late in my life. And I guess, you know, I just say that because a lot of these ideas that I've been so fortunate to absorb just as a kind of plagiaristic sponge to some degree were because I got to sit across the table from brilliant people and in some cases go shoe shopping with them or pick out the toothpaste. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding. There's some really good stories in there. Really good stories. And so it is really never too late to be able to commit yourself to waking up, to figuring out who you are, to living your best self, and then by extension, really impacting the world. Beautiful. I mean, on that note, if you guys tap into Jeff's wonderful Commune podcast and also the Commune website, it's onecommune.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. And you're included. You have your course on there, Jason. I, I was one of the first, and that was such a tremendous honor to work with you, Jeff, not only on that, but over the years with the Wanderlust Festival and all the wonderful projects, just you really inviting me into, both of us, Whitney and I, into your group of heart-centered, world-changing humans that genuinely want to lead with love and compassion. And it's just always an honor to be with you and share your work with the world. And to our dear listeners, check out the show notes for all of the links to Jeff and his beautiful, beautiful works in the world. He's got some great teachers and colleagues that you guys will definitely want to learn from. And the book, right? Is there more than one book? It's a cookbook? 
The Wanderlust cookbook? There is a cookbook, yeah, that was called Perhaps Ill-Named Find Your True Fork. Right. Wait, why ill-named? Not ill-named. Well, I don't know. (laughs) It's kind of silly, I suppose. (laughs) And then there is the Wanderlust book, the original one, which I labored over for many moons that look still holds up. Actually, I go back and I read it and I say, who wrote this? Not bad. <laughs> I remember I remember one of the sweetest things that you had said about Find Your True Fork was, I believe it was about your mom yeah. and the pride of saying like, mom, I wrote a book. And that was such a sweet, gentle, vulnerable moment because I feel like for all of us, there's some sense of that inner child that wants to be like, mom, dad, look what I did in that very innocent, sweet way of wanting that acknowledgement. We go, we go back to acknowledgement and attention. And I think that understanding the inner child and understanding that that part of us is still very much alive and motivating a lot of our actions and thoughts. And I don't know, I just always remember that moment a few years ago where you're like, I did the book, mom. Mom's proud. It was very sweet. And I remember sitting next to one of your children at the Find Your True Fork event that Jason did at Wanderlust. I wonder... Do you remember who who it was? I was sitting. You were sitting at the head of the table, Jeff, and I think Skylar I might have was been there. sitting. No, but one of your kids was there. I remember because they. You don't remember this, Jason? No, I was oh. busy. I was bleeding from the hand. <laughs> that I was, was busy such a bleeding great from event. the hand. You know, actually, another thing I remember about that event that you might appreciate. Speaking of love, is one of our friends ended up meeting their future girlfriend at your event, and I remember distinctly. The moment they were sitting across from me at the table talking and then at the end of the event, we took a group photo, which we could put in the show notes too, because we always like to have the visuals. And one of our friends went to meet this girl. And I think they're still together, aren't they, Jason? Correct. So we won't say who it is, but yeah, it was very sweet. And I, I recall that event very fondly at Wanderlust. There have been so many great events. So anyone who is interested in them, in addition to Commune and Commune has incredible live events and online events, Wanderlust does. So there's a lot of great resources. As you've been listening to this episode, if you want to immerse yourself in more community, those are some great places to start. We appreciate you, Jeff. Always such a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 